Aloha kakahiaka e komo mai. Good morning. Welcome. Thank you for joining us for worship this morning. It is a joy to be back here with you all. Uh, we, we miss so many of you, and uh, we've been trying to get back here for a while. I think we had a, a trip originally scheduled for last January, but that didn't happen, and then Josh Gumbert had to preach last minute. Thank you, Josh. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of uh, Psalms, specifically Psalm 126. The whole of Psalm 126 is our uh, passage this morning, and like Pastor Dave said, I bring you greetings from Kihei Baptist Chapel, one of your sister churches on the island of Maui, and from the Komatsu family as well. Um, so we, we love you guys dearly, and uh, we are excited to be here, and I'm, I'm grateful to be able to bring you God's word this morning from Psalm 126. The title of this sermon is Great Things for Us. Great things for us. So I will read the psalm for us and pray, and then we will get into it. So this is what God's word says. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would glorify yourself, you glorify your son through the preaching of your word now. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would cause us to fix our attention and push out distractions. Anything else that may be going on in our life, Lord God, I pray that you would refresh us, that you would reinvigorate us, that you would rebuke us and correct us and encourage us and bind us up by your word through your spirit. Send your spirit now, Lord, and do all these things for your glory, for our joy, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Lord has done great things for us, and he will continue to do great things for us. Psalm 126 was written as a song to be used by the people of God for the worship of God. It exists for the sake of God's praise, but also for the sake of God's people. So we can continually reflect on God's greatness and goodness, God's kindness and faithfulness, so we can be moved to worship out of love, driven to grow in faith, and encouraged to keep going in hope. And if you pay attention to and you soak in this psalm, this is what God will do today for you through his word by his spirit. And this psalm just has two major parts to it. In verses 1 through 3, the first major section, we see our first point, remembering a dreamlike deliverance, remembering a dreamlike deliverance. Verse 1 starts by saying, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. What is Zion? Literally, it's a hill in Jerusalem. Biblically, it can represent several things, including Jerusalem itself, the new Jerusalem, the Jewish people, and even God's people in general. 
In context, God restoring the fortunes of Zion means God restoring his people. Historically, this probably refers to the time when God brought Israel back from exile and restored them to their own land by his grace. But we can't say that with certainty because that psalm doesn't say this explicitly here. What we do know from the text is that this was an act of divine restoration and deliverance, redemption, a moment of great rescue. Charles Spurgeon says, There is nothing in this psalm by which we can decide its date further than this, that it is a song after a great deliverance from oppression. Matthew Henry says, it will be easy in singing this psalm to apply it either to any particular deliverance done for the church or to the great work of our salvation by Christ. So yes, this is about God delivering Israel in particular, but it also applies to all of God's delivered people in general. And what verses one through three describe is how God's people responded, how they remember how God delivered them. And they have at least three responses to God's deliverance. Their first response to this deliverance is extreme shock. Look at verse one again. It says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. They're saying God rescued us. And when it happened, it felt so unreal It was like we were dreaming. John MacArthur says, this experience of liberation, so unexpected, seemed more like a dream than a reality. This is God's people saying, when God restored us, it felt too awesome to be real life. It was so unbelievably wonderful, we were in a state of shock. It felt like a trance or vision, or daydream, when God delivered us from our enemies, when he saved us from the consequences of our sin, when he rescued us from his judgment, it felt like it was too good to be true, like a dream. It felt unreal because it's the opposite of what they deserved, and they knew this. God gave them the law and the prophets to prosecute their unfaithfulness, expose their rebellion against him, and announce his coming wrath and righteous judgment. And as a sinner, if I have eyes to see the reality of my sin and rebellion against my creator, then I know I don't deserve God's mercy. I deserve to be treated like the guilty sinner and condemned criminal that I am because God is good and holy and I am not. Their state of shock shows they knew they were guilty and totally undeserving of deliverance. If not, they would have said, think about this, of course God saved us because it's only right because we deserved it. But that's not what they said. They said, is this real life? God actually delivered me? Somebody slapped me. This must be a dream because it's way too good to be my reality. And this, beloved saints, is the proper response to God's deliverance. Extreme shock. If you truly see the depth of your sin's despair, 
the greatness of your sin's offense, the massiveness of your sin's debt, the oppression of sin's slavery, if you truly see God's perfect holiness and justice and wrath and righteousness, if you see that God, in a sheer act of compassion, in an overflow of undeserved mercy, in a display of sacrificial love, gave up his son to death to deliver you from death, from your sin, and from his judgment, if you see all these things and recognize the greatness and grace of it, then the proper response to this gospel is sanctified and holy shock, to be awestruck by his mercy and dumbfounded by his love, to be speechless at the foot of the cross. When you hear this gospel and feel its glory, the right response is saying in your soul, this gospel, this love, this sacrifice, this eternal love, life, this free gift, this lavish grace, this total forgiveness, this everlasting kingdom, this true hope and peace and rest for my soul, this good shepherd, this savior, this Lord, this friend, all of this seems too good to be true. The improper response to this gospel is rejection or boredom or entitlement. God sent Jesus to die for sinners Heard that, familiar with it, I guess that's nice. No, the proper response is, how can this be? This is breathtaking, astonishing, overwhelming. The right response is to drop your jaw to the floor in wonder, to think that such grace is so great it can't be real, to stand amazed at how marvelous and wonderful is this dreamlike deliverance. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful and my song shall ever be how marvelous how wonderful is my savior's love for me to think that the triune god has reconciled rebels to himself to know that the judge has cleared the guilty of all their crimes to know that i should be in hell but i've been given heaven to feel that the father should cast me off forever but he's adopted me into his family instead to see that i'm unclean in my sin but he's clothed me in the righteousness of his son oh all of this is almost too much to bear too generous to receive, too lavish to accept, too good to believe, too great to be real. The gospel is a dream come true. This is the dreamlike reality of the magnificent gospel of Christ. And it has been given to you freely and lavishly and eternally if you are in Christ. And it can be given to you if you don't have it yet, not by working for it, but freely through faith. If you confess you're a guilty sinner and you don't deserve this gift, if you throw yourself upon the mercy of Jesus as your only hope. So the first response to this deliverance is extreme shock at the absolutely unbelievably good news of it. Their second response to this dreamlike deliverance is ecstatic joy. Verse 2 says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. 
This happens after the initial shock wears off and their new reality sets in. As the dust settles, they gather themselves, look around, and then say, actually, what God did wasn't that great. I mean, it's good, but let's not get carried away, right? That's not how they respond. What they respond with is nothing less than ecstatic joy. To be ecstatic means feeling or expressing overwhelming happiness and joyful excitement. Their joy here is so ecstatic. Think about this. As you look at the text, that words are insufficient to express their depth of emotion. Human language alone can't communicate their great gladness. They vocalize things, but they don't say actual words. They have to use more than words. The joy jumping around in them has only one way to come out of them, with joy-filled laughter and celebratory shouts. When God delivered us, it says, our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. This is how we should respond to God's deliverance of us sinners. With uncontainable jubilation and unashamed joy, with an almost undignified celebration, with one fat paino, with a thousand triumphant chihus. Everything must be done in good order, not in chaos, but that doesn't discount the fact, beloved, that our right response to this gospel is always open, expressive, rightly emotional, and ecstatic joy. What is the foundation of their joy here? It's tied to their restoration. It's realizing the wonder of saving grace. Grace so amazing, it seems like a dream. Their joy is grounded in realizing the greatness of their salvation. Why do you lack joy? Is it because you need a new set of circumstances? Is it because you need a better spouse or a more rewarding job? or a romantic relationship, or a bigger house, or more money, or less suffering, none of these things will anchor your joy. As a Christian, you lack joy when you lose sight of the greatness of the gospel, when your eyes are dimmed by your sin and your suffering, and you forget that the worst possible thing that can ever happen to you will never happen to you. And the best possible thing is yours forever because Christ has removed God's wrath from you and reconciled you back to God. That's how you get real and lasting and authentic and ecstatic joy. That's their second response. Their third response to this dreamlike deliverance is enthusiastic confession. The second half of verse two says, then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. God's deliverance of his people was so noticeable and amazing that even surrounding nations confess it. Here is an open acknowledgement of God's greatness even by pagans. They say, oh wow, you guys seeing this? Despite their sin and rebellion, their God has done great things for them. 
Even those in other nations who worship other gods must confess that our God in his greatness and grace is unlike all others. Many cultures have their own gods over their own regions and their own people group. But this shows that Yahweh, our God, is no small tribal deity over one place and one people. No, our God is God over all the true and living God, the Lord of heaven and earth. There is none like him. No one is great like him, and no one does great things like him. In fact, all other gods are no gods at all. They're false gods, mere idols who can't see, can't hear, can't move, and cannot act. But our God can. Though no one else can, he is able to save you, to rescue you, to keep you, to protect you, to provide for you. So even other nations see this and confess, the Lord has done great things for them. Then in verse three, God's people join in with confession, with this particular confession. They echo and affirm God's great mercy to them, and they say, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad But did you catch the difference in these two statements? There's a big difference between saying, the Lord has done great things for them and saying, the Lord has done great things for us, for me. The first statement is said as an observing outsider. The second, as a participating insider. It's good to see the great things that God does in and for others. It is infinitely better to experience them yourself. Have you experienced this gospel grace yourself? I'm not asking if your parents are Christian. I'm not asking if your grandma's a Christian. I'm not asking if you know your pastor because he's a Christian. I'm asking if you've experienced this gospel grace yourself. Don't be okay with just knowing people who know Jesus. Your parents or your spouse or your pastor or your friends can't know Jesus for you. You must know him yourself. So go to him, call upon him, turn from your sin, trust in him yourself. Don't be content to just say in your life, God has done great things for other people that I know. Go to the cross and cry out to Christ. And then you can say, God has done great things for me. So God's people here remember a dream-like deliverance, and they respond with extreme shock, ecstatic joy, and enthusiastic confession. If you are a Christian, then God has delivered you and done great things for you. Just like it is here, The key to joy in your life is remembering the glory of the gospel. It's rejoicing in the greatness of God's grace and the gift of God's son. The best thing that you can do every single day is remember God's deliverance of you and respond to it like they do here. Perhaps you said when God first saved you, I feel like I'm dreaming because I'm so overwhelmed and grateful for the gospel. Christ is all that I see. Christ is all that I know. To live is Christ and to die is gain. He has done great things for me. But maybe now, beloved, maybe now your gratitude has grown dull, yeah? And your joy has worn 
thin. Maybe the grind of life has smothered your initial amazement and awe. Maybe sins or discontentment or anxiety have crept in and slithered into your heart and your mind. Maybe the cares of this world have distracted you. Maybe intense suffering has pushed out gospel gladness. If that's the case, God's grace hasn't changed, my brother or my sister. You've changed. His great love hasn't left. Your heart has wandered. His deep ocean of mercy is still right there waiting for you. You're just not diving headlong and swimming in it. You know, we make much of revival. My brothers and I, we've been praying for revival in Hawaii for a long time. One source says that Christian revival is reawakening from spiritual dormancy and stagnation. Most of the time when we talk about revival, it's the big revival of a town or city or nation. But all great revivals begin with small revivals, with individuals, with personal revival. And if you've lost the wonder, if the gospel has become a regular thing for you, if you can no longer be awed by it, if God's grace and God's son no longer floors you, stops you in your tracks every day, and sometimes makes you say, how can this be real? If you can hear of God's mercy to you, a sinner, and not at all be filled with ecstatic joy, then, beloved, pray for God to revive you again. Psalm 85, 6 says, will you not revive us again? so that your people may rejoice in you. Pray that God would overwhelm you once again with the utterly amazing and nearly unbelievable goodness he's lavished on you in Christ. If you're a Christian, I don't know everything about you, but I know one thing. God has done great things for you, almost unbelievably good things, things that should make your heart leap for gladness, things that should fill you with gratitude that is greater than your circumstances, things that can make sin seem dull and boring, things that can energize and propel you through suffering. So that's the first major thing that we see in this text. It is the remembering of a dreamlike deliverance. The second thing we see is awaiting a greater deliverance awaiting a greater deliverance. Verse four says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. First, we saw the memory of what God did in the past. Here is the longing expressed in prayer for God to do even more in the future. First, there was a reflection on past grace. This is a request for future grace. Verse one, notice this, says that God has already restored their fortunes, right? So why do they pray here that God would restore their fortunes again? The answer has to be that there's even more that can be done. God doesn't say, I saved you, but I won't sustain you. I began a good work, but I will not or I cannot complete it. So good luck out there. Hope you do well. No, his covenant keeping is sure. 
His grace and generosity are inexhaustible. His fatherly heart is tender and big. He never gives up on his people. He saves them and he keeps them. And his power and strength are unlimited. So they pray to a God of fresh mercies and unlimited resources to do even more things for them because they know that he's full of power and he's full of love. I have limited resources. If I could, I would give my wife and daughter the world. But even with those people I love the most, once I've given them so much, I can't give them anymore. I just run out of stuff. I'm a finite man. But in Christ, your infinite God has infinite grace and mercy, infinite compassion and power, unfailing goodness, unending faithfulness. This means there's always a greater outpouring of God's mercy ready to wash over his people. The vast storehouses of God's riches in grace will never empty. His eternal power means that he has wowed us in the past and he will wow us again in the future. So here they ask, the God, for the God who has done great things for them to continue to do great things for them, that he wouldn't stop, but that he'd continue with more grace and more mercy. They pray, notice, for God to restore their fortunes like what? Like streams in the Negev. What in the world does that mean? Well, the Negev was a southern region in Israel that was extremely dry, dusty, and dead. Think west side of the Hawaiian Islands. Super dead. Think Kihei, Lahaina, Waianae. They are asking here for God to wash over them again, miraculously and undeniably. Then the Geb in certain seasons would rain and flood. And they're asking for God to visit them like making impossibly dry deserts flow with rapid rivers of water. They are pleading for an outpouring of sustaining grace, preserving grace, ongoing grace, abounding grace. They show faith in the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. And even after becoming a Christian, life in this fallen world is cursed, chaotic, and confusing. It can easily shrivel your hope and wither your joy. It can make your soul feel less like a lush valley and more like a lifeless desert. If your soul feels parched and dry, withered and wilting from sin and suffering, God wants you to ask him to visit you with overflowing floods of fresh grace and new mercies. Ask God to restore you again like streams in the Negev for life to sprout up where you see only death and decay, for the parched desert of your soul to become like a blooming and fertile valley. Charles Spurgeon, that great 19th century preacher, says about this, do not let us forget the past. But in the presence of our present difficulty, let us go to the Lord and beg him to do for us what we cannot possibly do for ourselves, that which no other power can perform on our behalf. Restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev, they pray. And then verse 5 takes a slight turn. It goes from asking God to speaking truth 
from being prayerful to proverbial. It goes from petitioning for a greater deliverance to promising a greater deliverance. These last verses promise an ultimate harvest for all God's people who sow right now in tears and sorrow. Look at verses five through six. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This agricultural metaphor includes sowing, weeping, and reaping. Sowing is simply scattering seed on the ground. The goal is for the seed to find good soil, then sprout, grow, and produce something worth harvesting. Sowing is anything you do for God's kingdom. This is sowing to the Spirit like in Galatians 6. This includes any obedience to Jesus, any repenting of sin, any pursuing of holiness, any enduring through suffering, any bearing of your cross daily, any holy effort, any gospel sacrifice, any Christ-like service. It's anything you do as a Christian for God's glory and others' good. But this sowing comes with difficulty marked by weeping. I love the realism in this proverb. It says, the sower sows in tears and goes out to sow while weeping. Why is the sower weeping? Because it's really hard. For one thing, trying to plant stuff and get it to grow and keep it alive is hard. That's why my wife and I buy fake plants from Target, because we always kill them. And this difficulty doesn't just relate to houseplants. It's on a larger scale with produce and crops, right? When I want food, I don't go out to my wheat field in the backyard. I go to Hawaii's farm, Costco. I buy 50 pounds of rice and 100 pounds of flour, and I'm set for the year. Sowing, planting, tilling, harvesting, that's just too hard. It takes too much time, too much work, too much patience. But if it's hard now, imagine how hard it was back then. The picture here is of trying to cultivate a dry and unforgiving land in a hard and unforgiving world. Put yourself in the shoes of these people in Psalm 126, these agricultural people who knew that literal sowing came with weeping, confusion, and even despair. As you go out daily and sow and plow the dirt and work your land, there's the fact of the hard soil. The ground may be cracked, parched, and dry, but you got to sow and plant something there. There's the exhaustion from back-breaking work that wears on your body. There's the danger of predators attacking you and enemies robbing you. There's the helplessness knowing you have no control over the rain or natural disasters. There's the heartbreak of all your hard work going down the drain from lost and destroyed crops. There's the frustration of thinking that all you're sowing is for nothing. You get the parallel? Beloved, as you sow to the Spirit, and live as a Christian, and try to follow Jesus, it's hard. You'll be tempted to think many times, and maybe you're thinking right now, I don't know if all this Jesus stuff is worth it. It feels hopeless, like it's all for nothing. I want goodness and growth, but all I see is decay, and all I feel is discouragement. But God doesn't rebuke you or shame you for your tears here. 
He acknowledges the fact of your tears. And he doesn't say, stop crying. He says, keep sowing, even though you're crying. Keep sowing in the midst of weeping, grief, and suffering. I know it's hard, and I see your tears. I know you're tempted to give up, to sink into depression, and give into despair, to be overcome with sadness and confusion. But all of your sorrow-filled sowing is not worthless because of the promised harvest, because of the reaping, because of the faithful covenant-keeping God. Reaping in this text is harvesting what you have faithfully sown and God has graciously grown. The sheaves at the end of verse six are the armfuls of wheat that you would gather at harvest. And this proves to the sower that all their sowing and all their work was worth it because they sowed in tears. But what? They reaped with shouts of joy. Your weeping, Christian, is not accidental. It's necessary for the harvest. God has ordained that you must go through it. He has ordained your suffering purposefully. In God's wisdom, his sovereign wisdom, he has purposed a joyful harvest will come not despite, but through your sorrowful sowing, sowing through suffering and heartache and pain, persevering sowing in your deepest trials and lowest valleys. As you await a greater deliverance, a full restoration, a complete redemption, a final salvation, the resurrection from the dead, seeing Christ face to face, his second coming, you need to know that one day, the joy of future harvest will infinitely outweigh the pain of your sowing. Your life right now is one of deep sorrow mingled with indestructible hope. Beloved, weeping believer, God sees you. He loves you. He sees your tears. And he is able to make you reap all good things in the end for his glory and your joy. You just got to cling to him. You got to keep believing the gospel. You got to flee your sin. You got to confess it and repent it. You got to hope in Christ. It'll all be worth it in the end. So don't give up. Don't give up. Keep sowing to the Spirit with the eyes of faith and a heart of hope. As you weep and your tears flow, keep sowing. As you suffer, keep sowing. As you sin, repent and keep sowing. Through chaos and confusion and heartbreak and grief, keep sowing. Keep living for Jesus and sowing good seed and clinging to Him as your only hope and righteousness. Our God is faithful. He will surely do it. Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not give up. Keep sowing. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because in the Lord your labor is not in vain. All of God's people, all of Christ's own all who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. In John 12, 24, Jesus speaks of his death and the outcome of it in conclusion here. And he says, 
unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it's sown. It remains by itself. But if this grain of wheat dies, it produces much fruit. Your hope is sure, and a joyful harvest is guaranteed, because the Father has sown the seed of his Son's blood for his people's salvation. Jesus died and rose so that all those who turn from their sin and trust in him will die to sin and rise to new life with him forever. If you are in Christ, beloved, the Lord has done and he will continue to do great things for you. Let's praise him. Let's remember gratefully his past grace. Pray boldly for his future grace. And let's go all out for Jesus as we do it knowing that in the end, it'll all be worth it. Let's pray. You are a great God. You are greatly to be praised. You have done great things for your people, and you will continue to do great things for us. Lord, I pray, Lord, that every Christian here would revel in, rejoice in, remember, and realize the dreamlike reality of the gospel, that their souls would be overwhelmed for joy and gladness. And that even with the suffering, even with the weeping, even with the grief, that they would run to Christ and they would keep sowing, Lord, knowing that you will cause them to reap all good things in the end. I pray, Lord God, that you would do these things for your people and that you would save those through your gospel who are not your people. Do all these things we ask and we pray for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.